If you have your copy of God's Word, I ask you to open them with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, and we'll dive into the Scriptures here momentarily. Um, we are in a series, uh, in the middle of a series, on our vision and mission, right? Our vision is that we would see the kingdom of God expand through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And our, our mission is that we would uh, treasure Christ together, become like Him, or treasure Christ, treasure Jesus, become like Him together, and share His gospel. So that's where we are tonight, or this morning, I guess. Uh, man, I'm, I'm just swimming in some... Uh, 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 sinus medicine right now, and so I'm, <clears throat> I'm in it. I'm, I'm totally in it. Uh, we are continuing, and this is the second sermon in our mission, and it's where we are this morning to become like him together. So we'll, we'll collect our thoughts here in just a moment. I'm going to read a passage of scripture, and we're going to pray, and we'll jump right in it. How's that? Here's the passage of Scripture from Philippians chapter 3, picking up in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. For this sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share, in, may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. God, just as we sang, we come to you, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Father, we pray. The only way we know how, in the name of Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, Father, to preach gospel-rich sermons, to hear your word proclaimed. God, give us ears to hear and eyes to see, minds to comprehend, and hearts to, to, to just believe and rest. God, we need your help. We're dependent upon you. And we ask all that in Christ's name. Amen. Those of you who know me uh, know that I have, I'm, I'm a, I've been a man of many hobbies. And those of you who know me really well know that uh, I have a tendency uh, to obsess over these hobbies. And I will spend a considerable amount of time researching something that, um, and learning almost through everything there is to know about a particular subject and, um, and, 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 uh, and sometimes it's obviously it's in some of the most random things possible. You know, in college, uh, where's Clint Johns? See here, I know he's a former he's a cyclist, current cyclist. Uh, in college, it was cycling, and there was a season where I would log almost 200 miles a week on my on my bicycle. And there was a season where I I got super into rock climbing, and I literally traveled all over the southeast trying to find the best places to climb. Um, and, uh, and researching where those places were and, and could tell you anything you wanted to know about many of these areas. Uh, recently, I've been learning how to keep a 20-year-old vehicle uh, of mine running for another 
six, or, six years or so so that my, my sons will one day have a vehicle that one, hopefully doesn't look that bad, and two, uh, is still running and is safe. Um, and as some of these hobbies I've had uh, have had redemptive purposes, but if I'm going to be honest, um, most have not. Uh, most have been for my enjoyment alone. And my assumption is that almost everyone here, in one way or another, can identify with this type of season, this type of focus that you might have over a hobby. And it doesn't always have to be a hobby. You know, sometimes it's sports. Sometimes it's our kids or it's, it's our jobs. I mean, fill in the blank. I mean, surely in here you can identify with something. And these kinds of things really are natural to the human experience because you and I were created to worship. We were created to adorn. We were created to treasure uh, and, to, and to worship. And the object of that worship is meant to be the creator, but oftentimes, as you well know, we tend to worship the created things more than we do the creator. And last week, Pastor John opened our mission statement with this phrase, treasuring Jesus. And our central prayer for this church, uh, is that we would be a people who treasure Jesus. And as we saw that this type of treasuring, it may cost us something. You can rest assured, it will cost you something. But in the end, nothing we could ever gain or lose can surpass the value and worth of knowing Christ. So in our passage this morning, we'll get to see the effects of what it means to, to treasure Christ above all else. Now, I, I must preface, this walk through Philippians 3 will not be as thorough as the one that you received back in October, November, I guess, when Pastor John preached through the book of Philippians, and we were in this passage. And so for that, I, I would direct you for a detailed exposition, which is what we want to do here, 98% of the time, we preach through Books of the Bible, verse by verse, line by line. So I'll direct you to the website to re-listen, to just totally re-listen to uh, this particular passage and, and, and sermon. Uh, again, for a more detailed exposition. But, but what I want to do today is zone in on a few phrases, a couple of big ideas that, uh, that I believe are in this passage. And for us to, to wrestle with as we consider what it means to become like Him together which is the second part of our mission statement. See, in the first part of Philippians chapter 3, Paul reminds the church at Philippi that one of the greatest obstacles <clears throat> to applying the gospel to ourselves is our human tendency to depend on our own resources. In these verses, Paul demolishes any dependence on human ability for righteousness. The dogs that he talks about in verse 2 that, that, that mutilate the flesh. And the Judaizers who, who taught that circumcision was necessary for salvation. Paul lists the reasons that he himself might even, he, he lists reasons that he himself might even put confidence in his own flesh. Verses 4 through 6. Only to claim that these trophies are resume, Right? Everything we can bring to the table is rubbish in comparison to with, with the righteousness that comes from God by faith. 
Rather than taking pride in his own accomplishments, Paul says he gains Christ by the loss of all such things. His salvation comes not from his accomplishments, but from depending on nothing but the Savior's provision. Paul aims to be found in Christ, to, to know him, to know the power of the resurrection, sharing uh, in his suffering and his death so that he may attain the resurrection. Sharing in suffering does not earn us the resurrection, but enables us to identify more with Christ, to experience the power that gave him new life and to, uh, to understand more of the love of the Savior who had endured immeasurable pain for his resurrection and for ours. So when we take serious stock of our lives and in light of the gospel, we realize that we must repent not only of our sins, but, but of, even of our achievements, even of all the good things that we have a tendency to, to bring to justify ourselves before God. But curiously and wonderfully, this decision from our, or this descent from our pedestals identifies us with the risen Savior who gave up heaven's honor to suffer for our sins. God's righteousness comes by faith alone. And this is the remainder of what we see in verses 10, 11, and 12, that justification comes by faith alone, through grace alone. And this sanctification is empowered by this idea of treasuring Christ. Ultimately looking forward to the second coming of Christ, where... We will be glorified and the sanctifying work will be complete. He's getting at this idea that the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ is to be treasured above all else. It's out of these truths that one begins to treasure Jesus, to treasure the work of the gospel. And it's from this that I want to make the first point of what it means to treasure Christ, treasure Jesus in such a way that we become like him together. That is, treasuring Christ is the primary catalyst for Christian growth and discipleship. Treasuring Christ drives us to know him more. It drives us to desire to grow. And as often, uh, I've, I know I've said this often, this desire to grow does not come out of obligation, but rather out of delight, right? Nothing fuels our desire to become like Jesus more than our delight and what he has already done for us. And if we've said it, the pastors of this church, elders have said it once, we've said it a million times, giving you a list of things to do, will not be enough to empower you to grow as a Christian. It might work for a little while, as you can make this commitment to check off the things on that list, but after a while, you will grow weary. Uh, if the motivation for Christian growth and discipleship is fueled by an obligation, then eventually it will fizzle out. So we need a different catalyst. 
to motivate sanctification and discipleship. Only a delight, a, a treasuring in the finished work of Jesus will be enough to motivate the Christian to joyfully press on in the Christian life. And this is why our primary mission here is to, to feed you Christ. Week in, week out. In our public proclamation, teaching, in the songs we sing, in, the, in our small groups, everything we do, our primary focus is to help you treasure Christ by feeding you Christ, showing you the gospel. Too many churches, they get this wrong. They begin with mission, and then they work backwards. This hope that as I go on mission, I'm going to treasure Christ. But in the end... No one's really on mission. So treasuring Jesus motivates Christian growth and discipleship. But, but what does it look like? What is Christian maturity, growing in Christ? What does it look like? So with that, I want us to look at an example Paul gives us here. And I think it would be well worth us to, to kind of to dig in. Again, this is not going to be a big exposition of this passage. We're going to focus in on some Key phrases that Paul makes here. Picking up in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained, uh, attained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Paul makes it clear here that even though he has counted everything as a loss for the sake of Christ... He's showing us that he's treasuring Christ above his own spiritual resume. But what do we see? He's saying, I have not arrived. I'm not there yet. He's not perfect. He hasn't entered into the resurrected state yet. He's, he's straining ahead for the day. Mature people, they humbly acknowledge that why they haven't arrived. If they haven't arrived and why they haven't. Be, be careful of an attitude that makes you think otherwise. If Paul could have this mature attitude, how much more should we? <clears throat> the gospel humbled Paul. Look at the way Paul talks about his life here compared to his pre-conversion experience in verse 6. There uh, where he said that in the law, blameless, right? He previously thought of himself as having arrived, but the gospel has a humbling effect, right? The gospel shows us that we're not as awesome as we think we are. And telling the Philippians that he wasn't perfect, Paul not only corrects any misunderstandings that they might have had regarding legalism and perfection, but his words surely bring hope to them as well. You see, Paul is identifying with them as fellow Christians. He doesn't want them to think that he is somehow superhuman or superior to them. 
he's made the He's made some remarkable statements, honestly, about who he is and, and, and about uh, what the Lord is doing with him in the book of Philippians. But here he's admitting that he has not arrived. Far from it. You see, God's design for you and for me is that we would, through time, be closing the level of hypocrisy in our lives. By closing the gap between what we believe and what we say and what we do. So, I guess just to level the playing field here a little bit, who would agree, raising your hands, who would agree that you've got some growth to do, you've got some growing to do? And so, really, there, there are two types of people in this room. Those who have their hands up and those who are liars. Listen, it's okay to not be okay. We want the church to be a safe place for for people with messed up lives to come. But guess what? We're all messed up. We're all hypocrites. So it's okay to not be okay. God God meets us where we are, but, but listen, it's not okay to stay that way. God's desire is that we would grow in holiness, that we would that we would grow up in the faith. So you and I, we shouldn't despair. We should keep running with Paul. What happens when you humbly realize that you need to grow in Christ-likeness? You will grow less smug, less critical of others because you believe that you need to grow as well. You will use your words differently. You will grow less self-righteous. And you will be quicker to identify evidences of grace in the lives of others. Also, your love for the Savior will grow because you realize how much you need His grace. Not many Christians, I think, well, I think most Christians can identify with this, right? Uh, we're not perfect, check. Um, but many Christians use this as an excuse, this idea that, well, we're not perfect. They use this as an excuse to be complacent. And that's not the, call, that's not the, the case here for the Apostle Paul. Even though he knows he isn't perfect, that doesn't mean he isn't exerting effort to grow in his knowledge of the Savior. Look at the, the overflow and the effect of, of what it means to treasure Christ Above all else, this ferocious, uh, passionate pursuit to know Christ more. And this, this makes me think about a quote that I read several years ago in a book Matt Chandler wrote about this progressive sanctification, what it means to, to grow in Christ-likeness and what it means to grow up in, in maturity. <clears throat> and he says this, that grace-driven effort is violent. It is aggressive. The person who understands the gospel understands that as a new creation, his spiritual nature is in opposition to sin now. And he seeks not just to weaken sin in his life, but to outright destroy it. Out of love for Jesus, he wants sin starved to death. And he will hunt and pursue the death of every sin in his heart until he has achieved success. This is very different pursuit than simply wanting to be good. It is the result of having transferred uh, one's affections to Jesus. 
When God's love takes hold of us, it powerfully pushes out our own love for other gods and frees our love to flow back to him in true worship. And when we love God, we obey him. The moralist does not operate this way. While true obedience is a result of love, moralistic legalism assumes it works the other way around, that love results from obedience. With this, I want to highlight our second point, that out of treasuring Christ, we have a desire to grow. It is the primary catalyst for growth, but also that Christian growth, this sanctification that happens in the life of a believer is a process that happens progressively in our lives over time through a grace-driven effort. I wish I could tell you that when you're justified, you become a believer in Christ, I wish I could tell you that you were going to be perfect. I wish I could tell you that your spouse is going to be perfect. They're not going to sin against you. I wish I could tell you that your best friend's not going to make you upset or you're not going to sin and break the trust or um, commit a sin to your children or you fill in the blank. I wish I could tell you those things, but that's simply not the case. We don't meet glorification. We don't meet perfection in this life. Now, there are some who teach that you can, uh, but every time I've ever asked somebody in those faith groups that, uh, have you ever known anybody? And the answer is always no. And it's for obvious reasons. We have a sin uh, nature that, that even though we may not be enslaved to, the presence of that sin nature is still there. The presence of the flesh is still there. And so we are to be going to work, going to, 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 to battle it. We should be waging war against the remaining flesh in our life. This is what the process of sanctification is. But here's the thing that you don't want to miss. It is grace-driven. The Spirit empowers us to do such things. We're not going to do this on our own, by our own effort, by white-knuckling this thing. And so with this, I want to continue on picking up in verse 17. We get to see what this looks like, the overflow of what this looks like, and, and how we're going to go about this sanctification process. Verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. He's given us this picture of what it means to either set our minds on the things of the flesh or to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. What does it look like as a believer to attach ourselves to people who are going to preach gospel truth to us and, and not shy away with pointing out sin in our own life and then being able to receive that and repent of that or, as he's contrasting, the 
the other side of things that we can focus in on, people who are enslaved by their bellies, right? So this idea of imitation is the theme that finds itself several times in Paul's letter uh, to the church at Philippi. Paul points to himself, to Timothy and Epaphroditus, and, uh, and ultimately to Jesus. But Paul here is calling the believers of Philippi to follow his example. And as we saw from this passage when Pastor John preached it uh, several months back, um, this is not a call for believers to simply just find all the heroes of the Bible, all the, the people worth following, and just try to do everything they do and try to arrange everything in our lives to, the, to what the heroes are doing, you know? Even the whole idea, notion of what would Jesus do? Pastor John talked about that a couple weeks ago uh, in our, uh, in our uh, uh, Capshaw uh, Academy. Uh, it, it, that's even a phrase that, you know, what would he do? But guess what? You can't totally do it, right? Um, rather, what has Jesus done is the thing we should be focused on. But the point is, Paul's imperative for the church, verse 17, to keep their eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us, by extension, is more than just him. It's more than just Epaphroditus. It's more than just Timothy and, and, and Christ. By extension, he's talking about all the saints, all the faithful saints of the church. Those who will walk according to the example you have in us can be a whole host of people. It most certainly included the elders that God had given and entrusted to the church to, to, to watch over them and to steward their souls. But it would also include lay members of the church. And this is true for Capshaw. Yes, pastor elders, that's why character matters and pastors and elders, because they are to be examples worth emulating, worth following. But, but guess what? There are small group leaders, ferocious, godly men and women, disciple makers here. This calling is for us to follow them, attach ourselves to them, do life with them, share meals with them. This idea of doing life together is where this idea, where this is it's really the, the breeding ground for this idea, for, for sanctification, for this progressive growth. It happens in the context of relationships. It happens in the context of community. And so what kind of example do we see in Paul? What, what kind of example does, does he show us in other places where he's... Not just this strong missionary church planter, which, you know, sometimes if we're just looking at those examples, we can be discouraged, right? It's like looking at the Instagram profile of someone that you follow and think, all, all you see is the flowery stuff. All you see is the, the perfectly uh, placed pictures and tables and all these things. You see all this, but you don't see what's really going on behind the scenes, you don't see the real mess that, that's, actually, that's actually there. And so with Paul, Paul's giving us, in his collective work in the New Testament, he's giving us a picture of, uh, of what it looks like in his entirety, his, his whole life as a whole. The type of things that he's calling the church at Philippi to imitate. So let's look at uh, a, a passage from, from uh, Romans chapter 7. Where Paul talks about um, dealing with the remaining sin in his own life. 
and what he's calling us to imitate. This is something worth imitating, and this is worth something worth finding people around you in our community that have this same kind of uh, attitude, the same kind of focus. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that is good, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want to do do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, by, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law that my mind and making, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. You see what's happening here with Paul? Paul saying, I have not arrived. He's saying there's a war being waged. In my mind, I know what is true. How many of you can identify with that? I know it. I believe it. But my members, my hands, my feet, my mouth, they're, they're doing something different. Again, this is where sanctification happens. And, and, and what kind of example we are to emulate here, what kinds of leaders and disciple makers do we want to see here at Capshaw be cultivated here it's those who are like Paul, continuing to remind ourselves, to remind others that, that we haven't arrived. And then they're quick to point out, again, in the end, uh, point us to what Paul, he didn't leave us there. God doesn't leave us there. Again, Romans chapter 8 comes right after Romans chapter 7, coincidentally, which is the greatest chapter in all the Bible. I know people laugh at me for saying that. My wife in particular does. It really is. Because you and I can identify with Paul in Romans 7. But guess what? In Romans 8, it begins with, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that's good news for people who are struggling. That's good news. And it ends with, There's nothing can separate us from the love of God. And all throughout the book of uh, 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 Romans chapter 8 is this picture of what it means to to, the, the Spirit is interceding with our spirit, making us cry out, Abba, Father, and Jesus, Lord. We see this idea that, 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 that the Spirit is driving us, this grace-driven effort to wage war against the remaining sin in our life, to put to death the deeds of the flesh so that we may live, right? To not set our minds on the things of the flesh, but to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. And this is all throughout Romans chapter 8. This is a grace-driven effort. It's progressive. We haven't arrived. By God's grace, I will say, this is something that we see 
regularly here at Capshaw. And praise the Lord. People who are continually confessing their sins to God and to one another. And having many who are, just like Paul, reminding us the hope that we can have in the gospel. We see this, this happens in the sermons we hear each week. This happens in the small groups that we have. I mean, this happens in disciple-making relationships where you put your feet under the same table at lunch, after worship, during the week, and all kinds of places. This is happening week in and week out. So do not be robbed by not gathering with the people of God. So how are we going to become like Him? Let's in our phrase, together. This is implied in this passage, and it's implied in our, this sermon, which is about becoming like Him together in our mission. How are we going to imitate this type of person? By investing in this community together. That's how it's going to happen. God has created community to be the central place where we learn to treasure Jesus more and to grow in his likeness. Find people who have been captured by the gospel. Those who have been captured by the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Community is where we pass along what it looks like to follow Jesus, to treasure Jesus. This is where we pass along our our values, our, our virtues, and our passions. All centered on the gospel. So you and I, we're created for community. It's baked literally into the fabric of creation. Where God doesn't leave man by himself, but he creates a helper fit for him. The one is another image bearer that's just like him. And the two together would image God and reflect him, something of his character And and they would spread images throughout the entire earth. This idea of uh, multiplication, this idea of great commission, it's not just in Matthew 28, it's, it's also in the commands that we see that are given to Adam and Eve, this idea of spreading the gospel through the ends of the earth. Listen, this can't be done by ourselves. This is done in the context of community. This idea of sanctification, it can't be done by ourselves. We can't do this in isolation. It happens in the context of community. And I'm reminded of what the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 10, 24, 25, where he tells us to let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as we see the day drawing near. These imperative commands to stir up one another. What, what does it mean to stir up one another's affections for Jesus? To cause each other to, to treasure Jesus so much that it begins to transform the way we love and serve one another. The way we care for one another. And just as Pastor John mentioned in the baby dedication, many of you know Um, we finalized the adoption of our fourth son, Cameron, this week. And I'll say this journey, which was two years in the making with Cameron, was really ten years in the making that was um, stirred by community. It was in a previous small group from a former church while we were back in seminary. And it just so happened that my uh, small group leader, he had written a book, uh, called Adopted for Life, and he's a voice uh, in, the, in the adoption culture. But in this, 
many of our friends had either, one, uh, were in the process of walking through adoption, or two, had, had, had previously adopted. And this community is where this theology of adoption was shaped for us. We can't say it was just because we wanted to be good people or good Christians. or we, I can't say that at all. In fact, this whole idea of adoption grew when we had a community speaking into our lives, helping us see that this doctrine of adoption, which God, before the foundations of the world, elects people who are enemies of his. Not just indifferent to the things of God. We were actually enemies of God. And he adopts us and makes us beloved sons and daughters. And he gives us a seat at the table. This idea of adoption grows. And so the passion that Sarah and I had about adoption, it grew out of our understanding of what it means to treasure Christ and see what God has done in our lives. So this is not to make us look like heroes. This is to make God look like a hero. This is, to make, this is to make God eventually work in us in such a way that we go to an adoption agency in 2019. We have a conversation with them. We leave totally discouraged over the path that's ahead of us and, uh, quite frankly, of what the whole process was going to cost. We left discouraged. And we said, Lord, this, we're obviously just not called to this right now. Uh, but you own a cattle of a thousand hills, and if this is something you want for us, you will make it happen. May of 2019, I'm at a hospital in South Alabama visiting my dad. A former classmate comes in, high school classmate comes in, and we begin to, I become aware of this particular situation. And there was question of whether or not where Cameron was going to go. And without even talking to my wife, I said, listen, if there's ever any question, my home is open. So on the when I left, I called Sarah. I said, hey, by the way, I uh, had a conversation with somebody. And, you know, we didn't know. We prayed about it, though. We didn't know if it was actually going to happen. Look, three weeks later, we get a phone call. Actually, it was a Facebook message on a Wednesday night after we left Capshaw uh, Academy. That Friday, we filed for custody for Cameron. And July 4th, we got him. And here we are now. We just adopted him this past Thursday. Now, I... Again, I'm not saying all this to to make Sarah and I look like heroes. I'm saying this because it was community that shaped our understanding of the gospel and drove us to this mission, this, this ministry of adoption, what it looked like. And it was community. Listen, when times got difficult, when times were hard, it was community that would show up at our door Babysit for us so that Cameron and I, or so that Sarah and I could go on a date, just have some time away from kids. It was community that brought us meals. It was community that prayed for us. The pastors, the staff here, every time I ever mentioned anything about this process, which was two years in the making, this, this community prayed, committed to pray. And it was people in this community. Some of you, I can look at you right now and I'm getting emotional. Not once. Did we want or need resources to go through this process? This community poured into this. And we also don't underestimate what community will mean for Cameron in the future. Again, I'm not, we, you just made a commitment to me. 
I just made a commitment to the other believers, the other children that were here. We are in this together. The community is where we will shape, one, our love for Jesus Christ, and two, our continued growth in Christ. And three, points us to go on mission for him. All of this happens in community. It's never by accident. And ultimately, we see, in closing, verses 21, or 20 and 21, Paul's pointing us towards this resurrection hope that we have, where Christ will come and he will usher in a new kingdom, new heaven, new earth, where, where everything will be made right. And all of this, again, is community-inspired. He's speaking into a community. And he's telling other people to imitate, to follow other people who are doing this very same thing, pointing us to community and what it means. You remember our vision, which is to see the kingdom expand through the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout all the world, right? That's our vision. So this mission to treasure Jesus and become like him together is wrapped up in our vision to see the kingdom advance through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So God's kingdom, listen, God's kingdom is at work in this church. And don't miss it because you're not connected. Don't miss it because you're not investing in the life of this church. Kevin DeYoung, a pastor and theologian, well-known, one of the incredibly smart man, uh, he, he writes this about the kingdom of God and the visible church, uh, the, the visible kingdom, which is the expression of the local church. He says, the life of the kingdom of God, a life of poverty, of spirit, meekness, mercy, purity, and peace, will be manifested to the world in the church. It's not that the church is perfect or that it showcases the life of the kingdom without flaw, but believe it or not, the church is the primary arena God has chosen to make his redemptive reign over his people visible. It is, at some, as some have said, the initial manifestation of the kingdom of God in this age. And as the world sees and responds to that kingdom life, the church will not only manifest the kingdom, but also bear witness to it. So the kingdom of God then, we may say, is God's redemptive reign in the person of his son, Jesus Messiah, which has broken into the present evil age and is now visible in the church. Listen, the kingdom of God is being made visible right here. Not this building, but the people who are here gathered together, the same spirit that brought Jesus from the dead is now living in this faith family. And your spirit is testifying with my spirit, and the spirit is testifying with my spirit that we, you and I, are sons and daughters. We are beloved children of God. And the men and women of this room that God has chosen to be objects of his great redemptive plan to make his name great around the world. This is, this is no small matter. Therefore, let's be a church that's serious about the gospel. Let's, let's consider what it means to stir one another up to love and good works. What does it mean to, to treasure Christ more? Let's, let's do life together in such a way that we push back 
on the remaining sin in our lives and thus push back on the remaining darkness that's in this world. So we need one another. This sanctification journey is not instantaneous. It is a process, a grace-driven process. And God has given us his spirit and the local community as means of grace to accomplish this work in us. And praise be to God for his faithfulness, for his goodness to us. So let's be a church that treasures Christ, treasures Jesus, and is committed to becoming like him together. We need one another. Let's pray. Gracious God, we love you. We praise you, Father, for the kindness that you have shown us in Christ. We thank you, Father, for the redeeming work of the cross, which draws us together, Father, as together as beloved sons and daughters, where we can sit together at the table and we can sing praises to your name. We can stir one another on to love and good works. And we can compel one another as we treasure Christ together, we can compel one another to go on mission for him, to share his gospel, share his good news. So God, I pray that you would stir within this faith family a deep, deep abiding love for Christ and what he has done. And let that be the catalyst. Let that be the motivator behind our community and behind our mission. And we ask all that in Christ's name. Amen.